Come, Lord God, and be present among us. Come, Lord God, and be present in my words, but also, Lord, in the way that they're heard. We pray, Lord God, that only the truth would be spoken and only the truth would be heard. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to be looking at the, re- the passage that was just read, Romans 13, 8 to 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can come grab one up front here. I'm going to be putting some of the readings up on there, but it's good to have it with you. We're also going to be turning to, to, uh, to Deuteronomy just for a second. Uh, we're going to talk about what does it mean? We've heard it in our prayers. We've heard it in the reading. What does it mean to put on Christ? What does that mean? But not only what does it mean to put on Christ, what does it mean to put on Christ and love our neighbor? Because those two things are linked, and they happen within that order. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. Our passage from Romans 13, if you're turning there, is a very important reading in the history of Christianity. Both R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur say that basically the, the Christian spiritual life is summarized within this passage. Uh, some of you know St. Augustine. You've probably heard the name before, St. Augustine. He was a... Uh, He was a Christian thinker and a Christian pastor, theologian, whose writings influenced the very development of Western Christianity. In fact, not only Western Christianity, St. Augustine's writings helped develop what we know as Western philosophy as well. Uh, He was a teacher, originally, of rhetoric, which is uh, basically arguing, in Milan. And his philosophy had led him to ask, you know, what's next next? in life. What is life all about? And he really wanted to start his life over. He wanted to start again, but he didn't know how to do that. And this, for for Augustine at this time, not saint yet, obviously, or even a bishop, he was under a lot of anxiety because of this, uh, to the point of tears. And so St. Augustine, Augustine is in the, uh, found himself in Milan in a garden of one of his friends. And while he was there in tears, he famously heard a child's voice sing, Tole lege, tole lege, which, which translated means take up and read. And the, the scroll that just happened to be there was Romans. And he picked up Romans 13 and turned to Romans 13, just happened to turn there, and he read vo- verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he said he didn't need to read anything else in the Bible at that point. All of a sudden, light came down and filled his soul, he said. And all the darkness of his doubt vanished and washed away. And from that moment on, Augustine took on Jesus. And the rest was history. And he led to help develop Christianity as we know it in in Christian thinking in the Western world. So it's a very powerful passage to unpack, Romans 13. And we start with verse 8 as we, uh, as we start, as we're unpacking it, where, where Paul writes, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, some have tried to say that this passage bans uh, lending or going into debt. But we know that's not true because elsewhere in the scriptures, lending and debt and how that is done is not only allowed, it's regulated. So for the moralists who are trying to do that, they wrote essays and essays on this. They basically were just wrong. (laughs) The fact what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about not allowing ourselves to go into any kind of 
perpetual debt. And not only that, um, apparently, non-payment or not getting paid for the work that you did was a problem in the Roman world. This is something that happened. People just weaseled out, found some legal way. It was a very legal society. Found some legal way to weasel out of whatever contract they were in. And this is something that we very much share in our culture with theirs. My family uh, were residential builders. And I happen to know that it is a, a very common thing for someone just before a job is done to decide, I don't quite like how that job was done, and then proceed to not pay and maybe have someone else finish the job and still live in the house even though they didn't like the work that was done. This happened quite often in cottage country where I was from. Uh, when people with lots of money or lawyers would come up, they would just refuse to pay the people uh, who had done the work that they had... Uh, they just basically found a way to weasel out of being paid. I think you can, we can all find examples of how this happens where people take money and don't return basically what they're owed for it. It happens within public service. I know that. I, we, we see it quite often, in fact. People use, will, some people will use any or all excuse not to pay their debts. Any legal angle they can do to, to weasel out of it, oftentimes. And what Paul's saying is, that is not the Christian way. It is a basic question of integrity. Christians fulfill their debts. But he's not saying this in a moralistic sense. He's saying this uh, in a broader sense where uh, throughout these verses in Romans 13, Paul is talking about the practical application of the golden rule, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And he's awakening us to the reality that love is an obligation. In the Roman world, they felt that love was some sort of sentiment. It was some sort of feeling. Does that sound familiar to anybody? In our culture, we very much see that love is some sort of sentiment, some sort of feeling that I have. What Paul is saying is that godly love is different. The love of the kingdom is different. It's a choice that we make. A moment-to-moment choice that everybody in this room makes. And the one debt, when we put on Christ, that never runs out, that one debt that never runs out, is our debt to love one another. Living morally is a response to God's love and action. For Paul... God's love is always, the love of God is always God's love toward us. And then everything we do is in response to that. Our love is a response to that. And what he does is Paul, he, he, he does it, he, he makes that point in a very interesting way in Romans 13. He actually points to the Ten Commandments. And we have this thing we, which we call the two tables of the law with the Ten Commandments. And if you have your Bible, you might want to turn to Deuteronomy 5. Make sure I keep my finger in Romans 13. Where we have the first, if you just look from verse 7 on, at the first four commandments, have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And even to observe the Sabbath day and to be with the Lord. They all have to do with our relationship with God. And traditionally in the Protestant world, we've called this the first table of the law. We start there. And then we move on to the second table of the law. And if you look at all the other laws, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, they have to do with our relationship with each other. So even going back to the Ten Commandments, love God and love your neighbor. 
If we're going to be people of godly love, we take on the love of Jesus, and that leads us to love one another. It's not just this moralistic. Paul isn't just saying, be good. He's saying to love God. And that's going to lead us to be good. The message of Second Advent, to me, as I read this passage, and as we see the prayers that we've just read, is to first love God, and then love one another. And you can see that in verse 9. He literally quotes some of the commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. This, this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The message of Second Advent is to seek to be formed into the people of godly love by putting on Christ. By first putting on Christ. And this matters for the reasons that Paul addresses within the very text that we're looking at here. If you turn to verse, we look at verses 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is addressing another issue that we share with the Romans. And that is spiritual drowsiness. He's saying, wake up. You see all, all manner of, of, uh, of translations for that word. Have vigilance. Make sure you're watching out. Watchfulness is a spiritual term that we use for that. Be vigilant. Rome had fallen into a uh, state of spiritual sleep. In a lot of ways, when we, we look through Romans, they were, they were becoming spiritually ineffective. And, and Paul here is pointing them to a heavenly orientation rather than a worldly orientation. And throughout Romans, we see this. He, he, he puts this contrast between darkness and light and wants the Romans to focus on the light. This term, I think uh, the term orientation, which comes up a lot in a lot of the, the commentaries, I think is very uh, a very good term to use here. The term that we use for orientation actually comes from the church. It comes from the direction of that we build a church in towards the east, towards the orient. In the especially in the more Catholic churches, the Anglican churches, they built there so the altar was built towards Jerusalem. So the question here, when we talk about our orientation, where is the altar of our lives oriented towards? And has that maybe that orientation drifted off as we drift off to some sort of spiritual sleep like it had for the Romans? It's so easy to go on autopilot. I work as a public servant. I get it. We commute. We work. We commute. We're home. We rinse. We rinse. We repeat. And I, I, I find myself falling into that. And slowly but surely, if we just kind of get into this worldly rhythm and we're not really focused on what it is that we're doing or what it is that we're about, we can start to orientate ourselves towards the world. The shiny things around us take more and more of our attention. That was happening to the Romans. They were becoming very comfortable. We slowly move into thinking like a secular person. We become oriented by worldly politics, by worldly stuff, by worldly philosophies. Now, if there's anybody here who, who isn't a believer in Christ, you might be finding in 2018, worldly politics, worldly philosophy is a very confusing thing. 
But we as Christians have that one, what we call that one central integrating principle. We have Christ. And our orientation to Christ helps us put all these things into order. So if you're here this morning and you just, the, the questions about life are just flooding you and you're, you're questioning because of the stuff's going on in politics, I would just really encourage you to consider Jesus. To read through the Gospels and see how he oriented a world that was just as mixed up as ours. And that perhaps that's a person that you might want to follow. For those of us who love Jesus, we are oriented towards eternity. Paul says our salvation is nearer now than it was before. We want to have a salvation orientation, a salvation, an orientation towards what, what's really going to matter. You might want to prepare for eternity. You're going to be there for a long time. The love of God compels us to be constantly awake, to be a people of godly love means being that we're oriented towards God. And so this gives us a to-do, something we need to do this week, something we need to do, I think, throughout Advent. Paul doesn't just tell us what not to, what to avoid. He actually tells us something to do. We look at verses 13 and 14 in the text. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or sexual morality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. These central passages, as they were for Augustine, give us direction. We are concerned with two things. Taking off and putting on. Two things, taking off and putting on. First, we take off. We prepare the ground While we do this, we're preparing the ground for grace and holiness to take root. By casting off, he means we're casting off all those things that have no place in eternity. And he's saying, you know, cast those things off like dirty laundry. Uh, Some of you know I was deployed. uh, Some of you here, I think everybody's old enough to remember the, the earthquake in 2010 in Haiti. We were there and landed on the ground the night, the, the morning before while it was still dark. And for those especially for the first couple of weeks, when we came back to camp from the things we got to about, there was all manner of stuff. I didn't want to think about what was on my uniform when I got back. And you could not wait to just get that thing off and chuck it into the laundry bag. Although, actually, there wasn't a laundry bag for the first while. We just put the stuff back on the next day and went out and did it. But you couldn't wait to get out of those dirty clothes. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about casting these things off like clothes that we just can't wait to get rid of. All that of those things that he's talking about there. And with equal enthusiasm, we're called to clothe ourselves with the things that belong to the realm of glory. Put on those, to claim the garments of light that Jesus gave us at our baptism. Prepare, preparing the ground for sobriety, for purity, for self-control, for principle-based godliness, and for the love of our neighbor. And a good focus word as we wrap this up for us to look at this morning is that term provision that you see in the last. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When we talk about provision, Paul's actually saying something about, you know, the forethought we're giving to how we're living. What are we preparing the ground for when we go? When we deploy with the military, we have a kit list we follow. And it's very important to follow that kit list. When I went down to Haiti, 
uh, I showed up there. there were, I found two problems as soon as I opened my, my cases up. First, I had brought my bug hood, not my bug net that goes over my bed. That's not a great thing when you're in Haiti. You're not preparing yourself for success and not getting malaria if you don't have a bug net. Luckily, I didn't get it, thank God. Secondarily, I had not properly unpacked my kit from winter exercise because it was in the, uh, the middle of November, or the middle of, just, of January, and I found my gauntlets, uh, which are big leather gloves that come up to here. I found all my, my, uh, my balaclava, things like that. Absolutely useless. Provisioning yourself properly sets the ground for success. We actually will bring the, the, the guys together uh, before we go on exercise or on deployment, they will bring in their rucksack. There's an old one for some of you. I know there's some older army folks here. will probably remember that one. Uh, they will come. They will put a tarp out. And all the soldiers will, will have to lay out all their kits in perfect order for the warrant or sergeant to come along and basically judge what it is they brought and what they haven't brought. Because provisioning yourself properly prepares the ground for success. And if one or two people forget important pieces of kit... That could have a major effect on the operation itself. If you think about it, if anybody here was, was going to be going away somewhere for a couple of weeks, and we were to take your, your suitcase and lay it out here, we could probably figure out what it is you've prepared for over the next two weeks. What it is that you've provisioned yourself for, whether you're going to Alaska, which is probably not advisable these days, or if you're going to the, to the Caribbean. Very different items that you're taking. If we were to look at our day-to-day lives and how we prepare ourselves, what are we really provisioning ourselves for on a day-to-day basis? Are you setting yourself up? Am I setting myself up for spiritual success? There's an old saying that if you're an alcoholic, you probably shouldn't be planning to tie your horse up in front of a bar. How am I preparing my day? Am I setting myself up for spiritual success? Making no provision. Success means preparing the ground for holiness in our lives. Cutting out the provision for anything else. And so a good start is putting Jesus on spiritually every morning. The, uh, our spiritual practice that we have, our growing in grace spiritual practice, recommends that we need to grow in prayer And a way to do this is to learn to pray the Bible. To learn to pray our way through the Bible. I always recommend, if we're starting a spiritual practice, to start with the Gospels. I'm going to recommend that you you read through, every morning this week, a story, even just a short story, of Jesus or something Jesus said. Pray through it. Notice Jesus. Be slow as you go through it. And as you do that, as you do that, and you're immersed in them, Start contemplating the day to come and ask two questions. As I think about what I'm about to do today, what is going to bring me closer to Jesus and what's possibly going to take me further away? And then just pray your way through that and, have, and, and let God sanctify your day from moment to moment. Very simple spiritual practice to start with. What's going to bring me closer to Jesus? What's going to take me further away? Paul is calling us to a a further spiritual depth. And as we contemplate Advent and the Advent of Christ and the love that came down, the love that 
left heaven to live with us and died for us. It's that display of love that compels us as we seek to be people of godly love in all times, in all moments. Now, I'm cognizant of the fact that we have a very esteemed production coming up here after me, so I'm going to wrap up with a big finish right there. There's an old saying that uh, it's too late to dig a well if you're already thirsty. We talk about preparing the ground. I'm not talking about, you know, some moralistic sense of just be good and God will love you. What we're talking about is maintaining our spiritual wells so that the spiritual water of God's grace will overflow and spread through your entire life so that even the small moral choices that we make themselves become acts of worship and sanctify our day. And these become moments of communion with God through Jesus Christ who saved us to that kind of life. Let's pray. Loving God, as Advent is upon us, and as we look to celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus to live among us and save us, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us know how to make manifest in our lives the things that he taught us and showed us in the love that he gives to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.